It's time to ignite your soul and unlock your full potential. Join us on Beneath the Helmet, the podcast exploring firefighters' health and wellness. Hosted by retired fire chief Arjuna George, our podcast is the perfect place to start your journey towards becoming the best version of yourself. So come on, let's join the conversation and find out what sets your soul on fire. All right, welcome back. This is episode number 15 with Beneath the Helmet. Today I'm joined with one of the most bravest open fire chiefs that I know. He's a fellow author of two amazing books, mental health leader, fire chief, Steve Serbic. Chief Serbic joins us today for a great conversation on firefighter and mental health. He shares his journey, his challenges, along with some great tips and resources for today's listeners. As this podcast is being released, so is his new book, Extinguished, A Fire Chief's Memoir. So be sure to check out both of his powerful books, and those links will be in today's show notes. So please enjoy this episode with Fire Chief and a good friend of mine, Steve Serbic, as he shares his powerful story and provides hope to all first responders. It's okay not to feel okay. This is a great conversation with Chief Serbic. Until next time, stay well. All right, Steve, welcome to the show. I really appreciate you coming on tonight and sharing your wisdom about, uh, you're a very passionate person about mental health. Thanks for having me. I'm, yeah, I'm honored to be here. It's anytime someone's doing a show about mental health, I'm, I'm always game for talking about things that we struggle with and trying to keep that conversation going. Appreciate that. For the listeners who don't know who Steve is, give us a little background of where you came from and what brought you to being an ambassador for mental health. Yeah, if you had told me in 1990 when I got hired as a firefighter in the city of Surrey that I'd be out there championing mental health, I think I would have told you you're crazy. First 10 years of my career, I actually looked at people who were struggling as weak. And to be honest, I didn't notice a lot in Surrey. It was a rough and tumble place. There were lots of challenges. Staffing was an issue. Big department, but all the engines were three, three people, two-person rescue, two-person ladder trucks, but three on an engine. So that's just how we did it back then. And uh, yeah, it was effective. We started there. We had 420 paid on calls and 125 careers. And now there are over 400 careers and very few paid on calls. It, it's, yeah, it's been a journey for sure. I've lost a lot of friends on my journey to suicide, including my own brother. I wrote a book in April. 2021 was released and then I'm releasing another one here in August of this year. It's at Friesen Press now and it takes, I'm probably halfway through the process. The script's all done. We're just going through the little bits, but it takes a few months to get that done. So that's who I am. I'm still an active fire chief, which makes it interesting to be out there and keeping the conversation going. But I'm certainly not afraid to talk about things that can make people better at work, especially things like organizational stress, struggling dark thoughts, addiction, those type of issues that secretly went unspoken, maybe untalked about in the fire service. Yeah, I'm not afraid to talk about those. What kind of reaction do you get from other fire chiefs when you talk about this? Is it well-received or is it, I wouldn't well, say awesome. new to them or are they swooped by it or how do they react to you? You know, it's interesting. One of them said to me, I was at a convention about just a few weeks ago and we went for coffee and and he just wanted to tell me how much he supported what I was doing. And he did say, I'm glad I'm not you because I wouldn't be doing it, but I do support you, which meant a lot. Big chiefs like Karen Fry in Vancouver, Travis Whiting and Kelowna. There's some chiefs out there, Tim Doyle, 
in Nanaimo. And there's some big names out there that they're out there talking about it. They're out there supporting their members and they realize what works and what doesn't work. And yeah, I think that's major as well as anybody managing people is very hard. And when you have people that are struggling, you need to try and figure out why. And that's the toughest battle for a leader or manager or fire chief is what can you do to make this a good place to work? And the Squamalt where I work now has had a very tough past. It's had a tough history, but a lot of conversations about how to be better. A lot of conversations on how do we go forward? How do we grow? And the firefighters are more than willing to tell you if they trust you, what they think. And they play a massive part of rebuilding the department. And I lived that, lived through that in Surrey in the mid nineties, things weren't good. Morale was low. Management was button heads with membership and 15 firehouses, every fricking truck hit the road at 11 o'clock and drove around until three in the morning. And there were fights in fire halls, drug use was through the roof. Drinking was like totally the norm. Yeah. A lot of challenges. I've seen it, lived it. And so I've been able to have a different view on what I see an organization struggling. And I get, I'm so fortunate. I get to go into them and speak and talk to the members and the chiefs and yeah, it's not an easy. The fire service isn't something you could explain very easily to someone who's not in it. So what can we do as a fire service to, to get a bit better in the regards to mental health? What can we do in your opinion to make us a more resilient service for our communities? I think we're doing it, I, but I think we have a long ways to go. People talk about the stigma, the stigma is something that I think we need to realize that it exists and that it will never go away. I was somebody who looked at people who were weak way back when, over 20 years ago, until I had my own issues. And I think you mentioned a word there called resilience. Resilience is basically, whether it be an organization or a person, getting the shit, get, getting the shit kicked out of you and then get back up. Mm. That's a resilient person. And same with an organization. I talked about Surrey, where we went through that awful time for over two years, but the five years coming out of that were amazing. They were amazing. So I think resiliency is a buzzword, but I think it really is about people that are willing to pick themselves back up and keep moving forward and getting to tomorrow. That's, and I think most of the firefighters that I get to speak to that are struggling, that's what they want. They want to just get through that time when they're really struggling and they don't see too far down the road, they can't see hope. And I think that's what our goal is of managers and leaders and fire chiefs is to say, okay, what's going on? How are you struggling? I've been in psych ward several times with firefighters, visiting them, driving them home, driving them to emerge, getting their prescriptions filled, staying in touch with them. And then what's so awesome is watching them fully recover, watching them go back to their kids and their wives. And cause the biggest problem with struggling with mental health is the shame piece, especially for men. There's a lot of shame that weaves itself into your, your day and your outlook and you feel shameful. And when you're there, unless someone comes and tells you it's okay. And that's what I do. I say it's okay, but I never say it's going to be okay because I don't know that because it's hard work to, to get through a mental health crisis and to try and figure out what's going on when you feel like you're losing your mind is hard work. And sometimes it takes years. But if you're supported, you can do it. And I believe that with anybody. I believe if you're supported, you can get through. What do you see in your opinion as some of the greatest challenges right now for firefighters with mental health? Is it organizational stress? Is it trauma, childhood trauma? What do you think some of your 
exposures that you've seen? Where do you see the issues arising? Yeah, I would say all of that. I would say that one of the biggest things that I've spoken all over North America, I've heard so many stories and so many first responders became first responders because they wanted to help people. And they wanted to help people because they had a shitty childhood or they went through some trauma or adversity and they decided that they were going to help people. But what's interesting, which is super common, is they never dealt with that trauma or that childhood or that past, right? And I would say in the majority of cases, when someone does take a knee and goes off work, it is not from the trauma they're seeing on the job. That trauma they see on the job is the Pandora's box for them to have the mental breakdown, but it's not the cause of the mental breakdown. And what we know now, I work for a big department where SISM's still in play. There's not a lot of departments that do SISM. And when I was an operations chief in Surrey, we'd have a third alarm. Let's say it's a residential house fire with fatalities. I would try and keep that third alarm assignment out at the resources, out at the hydrants, a couple blocks away. I didn't want them in there. I couldn't use that many personnel on a house fire, but there might be things they'll see that they don't need to see. It's tough to unsee what you, so I think as operational leaders, battalion chiefs, captains, operation chiefs, we can do a better job at the scenes. And I can think of a call right now where we, I split people up. I had people that didn't see everything. And then I had people that were right in there, were moving people from the homes. And I did two, two schisms. Now in BC, we have WorkSafe with the CIR, Critical Incident Response. It's way better to use a peer support platform and then reach out to WorkSafe and let them handle it than it is to have firefighters defusing other firefighters because we, what we found out in Surrey, we started in 1988 doing that. And what we found over time is that if somebody doesn't talk in that defusing, and they listen to all the stuff when you have say 20 or 30 people, they leave sometimes worse off in more danger than they were before they walked in for that critical incident stress debriefing. So kind of like I think curious trauma, right? hundred percent. Yeah. hundred yeah. percent. And I working in greater Victoria, I don't have a huge history here and I don't drive through every intersection and see a car accident that I went to, but I certainly did in Surrey. I think those things to play on you if you don't deal with them properly. And if you can figure out what your trigger mechanisms are or management or the organization can help you find out what those are, you'll have a better employee. You have a better firefighter. You have a better chief and organizational stress is the foundation of those problems. Organizational stress probably causes more people in the fire service issues than responding to a traumatic incident. Yeah. Very good points. So as a fire chief and fellow peers out there, what, what resources do fire chiefs in BC have for mental health right now? It's interesting. So myself and two other chiefs, both deputies with big departments on the mainland, we are part of a mental health task force. So we have been building a mental health task force with the support of the fire chiefs association of British Columbia, and we have peer support counselors now in play. And we have resources for fire chiefs and fire chiefs can reach out to this peer support group that have been built by people they trust. We're just getting it finalized. Now we're hoping by June, we'll have all the peer support people in place. And the three of us have been there for chiefs who are struggling. So we've been giving them the same support that we give our members because 
just a couple of years ago, there was no support for chiefs put in 20 to 25 to 30 years to get to this position, your career, and you've been through all the shit that the, the firefighters are going for. And now they're taking a knee, but all the leaders have been there, if not are still there and they're supporting people who was supporting them. And yeah. we didn't do a very good job. Massachusetts does a great job. They have a program called strong chief and yeah, they mentor brand new chief gets two years of mentoring. Wow. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. And I'm pretty connected with some people over there and you can learn a lot when you're supported, right? Like even if there's a grievance, you're in a small department. You reach out to a bigger department, they've been there before. They will help you get through it and, and work with you. And I, I think for me being a chief, first of all, it's not something I dreamed of being. I defaulted my way up here, but it's a great opportunity for a kid that used to break into things. And when he was 12 and 13 years old, didn't have a lot of hope. So I look at life maybe a little differently than most chiefs. I, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid to ask questions. I'm not afraid to make changes. I'm not afraid to discipline. Well, that's one thing that Suri taught me is how important discipline is when there's harassment and bullying and things that need to be dealt with and you need to deal with it as fast as possible. And, and that's how you make positive change is right there. That's how you do it. And most part members support that because you, if you do it fairly and honestly, and it's for the right reasons, they will, they will see that you're trying to make it a safe environment. And I think that's the newest buzzword. And I really like it. It's psychological safe environment for people to work in. I think we're just starting to understand what that looks like in the fire service because it's a tough culture. What do you think some of the foundation building blocks for building a psychologically safe fire department would be? I think, I, I think holding people accountable and allowing people to make decisions and supporting them when they make a bad one. So if you have a captain that you say, look, I want you to just make the decision. You don't have to phone the duty chief. You just, you know what, make the decision, justify why you did it and we'll support you. That goes a long way with a young captain who's really trying to do a good job and they do make a mistake and you're like, okay, you're not going to do that again. Here's why, or, but it's all good. This is part of the process. This is, I think that's the missing piece. I worked on a rescue truck with someone who was super confident and we always talked about how we were so worried about pulling up to a scene, like on the Portman bridge or Padella bridge where there's already four crews and now you got to perform. We weren't worried about the public seeing us make mistakes. We we're worried about those other firefighters, mm -hmm. our peers. So the pressure within the organization to, because it, that's the thing that I think was allowed was that peer pressure, that, that organizational stress. It was something that it was what it was, but you know what? It has hurt a lot of organizations and stunted a lot of growth for departments. So I think we're starting to recognize that and psychologically safe means that if somebody does something that's offside or harasses someone, we need to deal with it. That's what psychological safe means. You nice. days of bullying and harassing are getting closer to their end. They're still there for sure. You know what? I think we're starting to take notice and we're starting to find ways to better deal with them because it's not always about discipline. It's sometimes it's just having a conversation with someone and yeah. that's it. Probably more about education first versus exactly. discipline. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Great points. Great points. So what does chief do for his own self-care? Uh, yeah. Daily basis. What's I, some I, of your nuggets? I probably should have an awesome answer for this, but I was on a stage at a wellness summit conference and that was the first question they asked me and it was right at the end of the year. And I said, man, 
I said, I did not do a very good job in 2022. I looked back, I worked a lot. I didn't feel like doing a lot of exercise or getting out into nature. So I filled my bucket up with work, which is the worst thing you could do. But I do ride, ride trials bikes. So I have a trials bike park right next to my home here in Greater Victoria. And so I can ride right out my garage. And I try and do that more often. I got a dog. A border collie dog that I spent time with. My wife's super supportive. We try and go for walks and do stuff. But in all honesty, I didn't do a very good job of that in 2022. So this year I'm trying to be better. I'm doing a lot of courses. I took a bunch of clinical counseling courses just before COVID. I put in for my master's and I started the program and then COVID hit and I was actually working in Surrey then. And it just got so busy. I just, I deferred and then I didn't finish. Yeah, I'm doing a bunch of stuff now researching and learning about gut, liver, and brain health and how important it is. And so for those big drinkers out there, I'm trying to get a little bit more educated so I can explain why you don't want to be using alcohol as a coping mechanism, because here's why, not to mention it just got nailed as a number type one carcinogen. The occupational cancers that are coming out are directly linked to drinking alcohol, which is terrifying. That's all happening right now. Yes. So yeah. it's making everybody think Then I, I coped with alcohol as, as good as anybody. And I hear people saying they're coping with cannabis now. I've never tried weed, but I have two buddies that were sick with cancer and I know they had no appetite and they used CBD and it really helped them, got them through their chemo. And my, my mind's opened up towards different coping mechanisms over the last five years that I never thought. You look what Special K is doing for people with suicidal thoughts now. You look what psychedelics they're using them for. It's pretty amazing. And I don't think when you're struggling that there, there is a, like a no-go. I think different people need different avenues, but you have to go through a health professional. You need to be meeting with your doctor, a health professional, whatever journey you're on. Clinical counseling, I'm a huge proponent of it, but it doesn't work for everybody. It just doesn't. Yeah, it's pretty amazing to see what's happening with the psilocybin and the, like you say, the LSD, the special K, it's all used to be a no-no. That's sex that we don't look at and we don't touch, but the things that are coming out for people who are suffering from trauma and stuff, that is, it's working like magic on some of those people. Well, if you look back at history, Nixon took them all away. They were working before in pre-70s, they were using them and then they took them all away. And I talked to people who are pounding back the booze and they're like, I just, this works for me. And I, I don't challenge them on it because it worked for me too, until one day it didn't. Coping with alcohol does work. Not to mention it's a social lubricant. So when you're around your friends and you're having a couple of beers or some drinks, it is therapeutic to be around your friends and talking and that, that social lubricant is a massive piece of the fire service. It was a, it was how we were taught if a call bothered, you have a yeah. drink and still bothers you have another one. I was taught that way and it, it worked. And then one day it didn't 10 years into my career, it didn't work anymore. And I'm not against drinking. I don't I have lots of friends who drink. I still have a, I'm a casual drinker. I am fearful of the old days where I really got in a lot of troubles. I have a different outlook, but the people that cope with alcohol, man, I totally get it. I get it because it worked for me. So when you said that 2022 was a bad year for your own self-care, what did you notice in yourself that was maybe decreasing or? Yeah, I think as my, one of my kids said it best, my son moved home from Japan and my daughter was home from Queens and they hadn't been around me in a couple of years, like full on. They'd come home in the summers and Christmas for a couple of weeks. And 
but they asked my wife what was wrong with dad. And what was wrong with dad was when I came home, I didn't have any capacity for my family. So I was just in a young department that's going to rebuilding stage. So I was pretty focused on that. And I'm a fence builder. So the fence can be finished by midnight. I would rather stay out there and not eat dinner and finish that fence. And that can catch up to you. So it certainly did in 2022. I worked a lot of weekends. We were sh really short of staff. I really felt, I, what did I say to my wife? I said, oh, if I just get through this week, next week's going to be a breeze. And she said, <laughs> Steve, you've been saying that for a year. And she's right. So I think that's what we get caught up in. And I am, um, I do a lot of breathing. So an amazing human being by name of Jim Keats taught me how to breathe. So in the morning, I wouldn't call it meditation, but when I wake up, I do about 10 minutes of breathing, just focusing my thoughts on my day. I just breathe before I get out of bed. Sometimes I'll hop in the hot tub at just after five and I'll do some breathing in there, take a shower, get ready for work. And then anytime I get into trouble, I used to suffer from anxiety and I had panic attacks. I haven't had those in years. Actually, you do know this individual. I lost a friend of mine, Forrest Owens, last summer. And that's the first time in many years that I've had a big panic attack. That night, I met with the family just to see what we could do short term until we could get things sorted. And I went to bed that night and had a massive panic attack. And I said to myself, okay, I know why this is here. I know we haven't had one in many years. I breathed through it. But the next night I had another one and I breathed through it. I phoned a friend of mine who's a psychologist in Colorado and I was feeling very emotional. And so we just talked it through and then within a couple of days it was gone and I've never had another one, but sure enough, I came back. Anxiety is worried about the future and depression is kind of worried about the past. So what I found out I was worried about was my own mortality. I've never been afraid to die. But what I realized when I lost this friend was what a huge toll he left, not just with his family, but with everybody who knew him, like he was a special human being and that scared me. It scared me that I was going to leave that hole for my family, my friends. So I had never really thought about something like that before. So once we figured out that's what was bothering me, nothing, it was all gone. I was still sad. I lost a friend, but I certainly mm -hmm. didn't, wasn't battling those things. So that's how powerful counseling can be. For me, it works. EMDR works for me, but pe sometimes people need other options. It's, and it's always changing. There's so many things that like, we just talked about a whole bunch of new drug therapies that are out there, but even new breathing techniques and cold water therapy. You look at that over the last few years, how incredible that is. Like that is magical to grab a hold of a suicidal thought. Like somebody's yeah. having dark thoughts, get in that shower or hop in the ocean, it's gone. Yeah. The spike of dopamine and it's gone. And they're like, holy smokes. And you, the person just realized I do have control of my thoughts. I'm not losing my mind. And then that little phase right there inspires them to get to tomorrow and start working on themselves. And yeah, it's interesting what we're learning and maybe, and I'll use myself as an example, maybe because we're opening our mind more, maybe because we're starting to just really open up our minds. And I know I am because geez, I've lost a lot of people in the last few years. I'm at that age group where I'm starting to lose them to cancer, some to suicide. And yeah, it makes you think, right? I really want to be around for a few more years for my family. I'd love to retire out of this department I'm in and with making positive change. I have a whole bunch of aspirations. I look at 2022 as maybe a bit of a resilient year. So I learned a lot about myself and there was some growth in there for me and I'm making healthy changes now and eating better. And yeah, yeah, I, 2023 has been pretty good. Good. Awesome. Yeah, totally agree. I think there's so many new modalities. I, I honestly think that 
this time in the fire service for all members from rookie to chief. It's pretty exciting times for the advances we're making in self-care, mental health, and just being more open. I believe that we didn't talk about meditation five years ago, and now it's everyone's talking about meditation, breathing exercise before you go on a ride. That's pretty cool to see that transition occur for the betterment of fire service. Yeah, I look at it as exciting times for sure. Yeah, I was an ESM instructor for the Justice Institute for many years. And then I work with a lot of young officers and a lot of them, when you become a captain, or even if you're just acting, you hop in that seat for even one night, you're not sleeping, mm. right? Like they're, and I show them these little breathing techniques that I have and they work for me. And then I show them how to do a size up. And I said, you learn how to do a good size up. People go, oh my gosh, you're great at incident command. And you'll just <laughs> keep that little secret and go, actually, I'm just good at size ups. Because once you get started, it all just starts happening. It'll just unfold. Yeah. Being in that seat, being an incident commander, whether you're a captain or a battalion chief or an ops chief, it's all about confidence. It's all it is. Just being confident. And the only way you can get confident is skill sets doing it. Whether it be at real calls or practicing and you'll get confident. And I just tell people work at it. And then once you get through that first minute, there's only a couple minutes where people will be right there to help you. And the whole thing will just start unfolding. And you'll have lots of people to talk to and you'll be able to find a groove and it'll just unfold. And if you believe that, you'll get through that first minute. The first minute's a kicker. Once you arrive, your adrenaline's racing, especially if you're doing something that's cutting someone in the car or doing a rescue or yeah, it's, you gotta be focused, but most firefighters have all that training instilled inside of them and it just comes out and they do it. Yeah. The first five minutes will dictate the next five hours, right? Yeah. Do you mind sharing some of your breathing techniques or at least uh, to yeah, describe no. your, some of your favorites? So Jim Keats taught me box breathing, which is out there. It's a tactical breathing. It's, it's you visualize a box and it's breathe in for four, hold for four, breathe out for four, hold for four. And if you visualize a box, it's a great way. If you're just getting into a situation where. Uh, there's going to be some anxiety, whether it be responding to a call, something at home. And I use it in all sorts of situations. I was in the U.S. speaking on West Palm Beach, Florida. I was getting my rental car and this guy in front of me just started to light the guy up at the counter. And I just actually started box breathing, like simple scenario like that, because I really wanted to say something. But one in five people in the United States have a gun. So I thought maybe this isn't the time. And this guy was so irate that he wasn't getting an upgrade. Like he wanted this person fired, was swearing his head off. And normally I would say something, but I just smiled and did my breathing there. And yeah. I've used it responding to calls. Most calls I do it just for practice. My, my other breathing is it's more of a gym taught it to me with breathing with intent. So when you're breathing and I do five and five, some people do six and six. So I just breathe in for five in through my nose, out through my mouth. So it's a conscious thing that you can recognize. And I think of what I'm grateful for. That's how I start my day. And what am I grateful for? And then when I drive to work, I think of what are my challenges going to be? And then. It's interesting how you can clearly think about dealing with your challenges. If you start your day well in the morning and you, you, again, confidence, I feel I'm pretty confident human being. I'm not afraid of anything, but I, I think I got through a lot of things in my life and I got here through maybe a bit of hard knocks, but I'm just not afraid to ask people to get involved. Like that incident, I told you the box breathing was to just so to, to make sure I didn't get involved in that event. And it was hard because I, that's who I am. I just, I get involved in stuff and I just, yeah, I was actually proud of myself because normally, <laughs> uh, yeah. So there you got go. yourself in trouble, eh? 
Yeah. It's just when you're in a different country in a different place. And I was only there to do a one hour presentation and I, I flew there. It took me like 20 hours to fly there with the rental car. The guy at the counter was super nice. I asked if he was okay. We talked for about 15 minutes after the guy left. And I just said to him, Hey, please tell me you didn't upgrade that guy. He goes, no, I didn't. I go, good for you. So I said, Carmel will smack that guy in the ass at some point. Yeah. yeah. Anyways. Yeah, so, yeah. I, I, I'm a firm believer of the power of breathing. And I even said in my book is I didn't learn how to breathe until about two, three years ago. I was always an up in the top of the chest kind of breather, very shallow. And it actually increased my anxiety because of my breathing. And so when I was able to control that, wow, what a difference in my own well-being and my anxiety state for sure. Total game changer. Yeah, I went to, in 2018, I went to Loon Lake with a bunch of fire chiefs, the top fire chiefs in the province went, there was eight of us. And one of the doctors there taught us about heart math, which was breathing based. And so I wanted to learn more. And so I did 10 sessions with Jim Keats and he hooks you up to a little electrode on your ear and you close your eyes and you visualize. So you're visualizing something positive in your life. And I think he was getting a little frustrated with me because it was like my six sessions. I got six hours into this breathing thing and it was like, I just wasn't getting a lot of traction and I was starting to lose faith. And I think Jim was getting frustrated as well a little bit because I'm not great at, I wasn't great at visualizing, mm. but it, I just picked a thing when my son was really young, he was four and I had these woody pajamas on and I'd said, Hey, let's go to bed, buddy. So I pick him up and I visualize my eyes are closed and I'm breathing. And he calls the coherence when you get into coherence, your heart rhythm will, instead of being erratic, it'll be perfectly in coherence. And so I started thinking about this. I could even smell the fleece because we used to use fleece with our clothes as I was visualizing, carrying my son up to my room. And then Jim said, okay, open your eyes. You're there. And I could see clearly on the heart monitor that my heart rhythm was in perfect synchronicity. And he said, do you feel what that feels like? And there's a feeling, I call it the zone, but there's a feeling that happens to you when you get in coherence and you only need to taste that once where you want to get there again. And then the practice, it just happens. My breathing happens by itself. I consciously, when I get in a situation, I don't even have to do it. My body just autonomically does it. Cause I, I practice in the morning. I, it just does it. So I think those are some super powerful things that I'm not on any medications for anxiety or depression or anything, but I probably could have been or should have been if I didn't know how to regulate my heart rhythm and my, and know how to control my breathing. And I, I attribute all of my progress to breathing. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. One of my favorites is the four, seven, eight. So in for four, hold for seven and out for eight. Yeah. Like yeah. I said, breathing is, couldn't recommend that more to listeners today for sure. Yeah. If you do some research, I always tell people, you think you could hold your breath for 90 seconds. You're like, no way. I go, okay. Wim Ha's got a YouTube video out there. Guarantee you would be able to do it. And yeah. then you could go into two minutes, two and a half minutes, three minutes. But it's interesting that people don't think they can do it, but he does it with you in 11 minutes. In 11 minutes, you're holding your breath for a minute and a half. That's a long time. That's a long time. Yeah. But it's just, it's power of thought, right? Walks you through it, but you're holding your breath for a minute and a half. Think about what you could do if you're in a burning building. And now we're doing self-rescue techniques and self-survival. And I wasn't taught that. Like I. Never in the fire service was I taught how to breathe, to manage my emotions, to manage my anxiety. Nobody taught me that because you know what? It really wasn't a thing. And if it was, I'd probably have been one of the people that said, yeah, I'm not doing that. That sounds too wacky, crazy for me, but look where we are now. Awesome. Love it. Tell us about 
how you came to writing your book, The Unbroken. It's interesting. I'll go back to that Loon Lake. I, I was in there and I'd lost a friend to suicide and I was actually feeling pretty good when I went there. I, all the chiefs thought they were going there to just see this program for their members and we're there for four days. And one of the things they asked us to do as soon as we got there is to write a little story from the time we were a kid till the time we became a firefighter. And when I had my mental health crisis way back in 2000, the clinical counselor I was working with had me do exactly that. And she wanted me to journal and she wanted me, she said, I didn't have to share with her, but I wrote this, I had 150 pages of notes from my childhood. And what's interesting about that exercise, I didn't tell them that I had this, I'd already done this exercise. My wife knew it and my friend who took his life. Those are the only two people that knew I had this stack of papers that I had never gone back and revisited since that clinical counseling 10 years into my career in Surrey. And when I left Loon Lake, I definitely was struggling. We, when you hear other people tell their stories and you open up, you, yeah, you just, you become vulnerable. And it was just such an amazing experience that I'd never experienced before that I wanted to go back and revisit the, those notes I had in my closet. So I pulled them out and I ended up leaving the fire service, not probably about eight months after that. And I decided I was going to write a book and go and speak. And so I spent two hours a day for about a year, rewriting those notes into something that might be a little bit more that people from the fire service might understand, but I did not write it to publish. So my buddy who took his life said, look, you got to finish that. And you got to just give it to your two kids. Just, they might be thinking something about you that they don't understand. And, and so that's, that's how I wrote it was I was writing it to give it to my kids, mm. both of them. And then a friend of mine, or sorry, my son's friend was a lit major in university and he was there and he was strapped for money. So I said, I'll pay a two fifty a chapter to clean up my notes. And I did. And he said, you should show this to an editor. So I did, I found an editor, sat down, gave them the manuscript and they go, you got to publish this. And mm -hmm. I had some really personal parts in there. One about a girlfriend in high school that I didn't want to share because I didn't want to hurt that girl. Mm -hmm. uh, the girl was sexually abused. And when I was involved in that relationship as a teenager, all I wanted to do was run away. So I claimed of that. I didn't have the tools to deal with that. I, but I didn't want that part in there, but the editor talked me into leaving that in there. There's a time when I got beat up at high school and I had a suicidal thought and I thought about taking my life at 13 years of age. And I wanted to take that part out because I thought it'd be too hard to put that out there. And she convinced me to keep that part in there as well. And uh, yeah, then I went down to Friesen Publishing in Victoria and just talked to somebody there and they were very supportive. And yeah, I just, we went in there and I ended up going back to Surrey Fire. Surrey Fire asked me if I'd come back. And I went back and when I was in the Surrey fire department as an operations chief, a, it was finished. The book was finished. I just thought I would wait till I left the fire service before I pushed publish. And there wasn't anything in there that would be harmful to people in the fire service, but I held a position that was respected as an operations chief in a big department. And I'm not saying I am respected, but I'm saying the position was, and I didn't want to hurt that or the department, right. but a female member in the RCMP shot herself under a bridge in Richmond that really bothered me. And then I started to think I could get hit by a bus tomorrow. So I walked in and 
said to the chief, Hey, remember when you asked me to come back and I told you I got a book at a publisher? He's like, yeah. And I said, oh, I'm going to push publish. And he goes, does it hurt to Surrey Fire Service? I go, no, actually it's complimentary. He said, okay. So I pushed publish on Tuesday and on Thursday, CTV phoned me, wanted to do an interview. Mm. Gloria Makarenko called out, was a big fan of Gloria Makarenko and then a couple black press newspapers and then all the big newspapers, Ottawa Citizen, Toronto Sun, Calgary Herald, Edmonton, like 60 newspapers across the country did interviews and that book. Yeah, took on a bit of a life of its own. And I got hundreds and hundreds of responses from not just first responders, but people who were struggling. Hmm. And I think I talked about leaving that master's program because it was a leadership program. Holy smokes. Did I ever become educated on how people struggle and how they got through it? And one hmm. thing I can tell you is that they're all different. Hmm. Like everybody's story is similar. But the way they coped and got through it and were able to courageously tell someone they don't even know their story, amazing. I just think of some of the stuff I've been through in my life and I wouldn't trade it off because that experience of people reaching out and talking to you about their struggles was, yeah, some of the fondest memories, toughest memories, listening to people and, but wow, amazing. People are, the human spirit is so resilient. What, what kind of takeaways can our listeners take from your book? What would be our top three takeaways that Ooh, top lesson, three takeaways. Less, lessons for our listeners that could help them maybe identify trauma or stress or deal with suicide. And there's a, there's a lot of tough subjects in your book. Yeah. We talked about it a little earlier. You talked about what, where does trauma come from or however that entered the conversation and you mentioned the past. I was always ashamed of my childhood. I did bad things. I broke into things. I stole things. I rode around in stolen vehicles. And that was when I was in elementary school. I didn't start to change my life until I got into high school. That's why getting beat up on the first day of high school was so traumatic for me because I already felt like a loser. When I was in elementary school in grade seven, I told myself in the mirror every day I was a loser. Your words are super powerful, but when you're telling them to yourself, same as positive, negative, positive, when you, your self-talk, is super powerful. I told myself I was a loser every day. So I was a loser, but when social services took over my life, I had an opportunity. My dad is just coming off an impaired charge. He wanted to keep custody. I wanted to stay with my dad, put me in sports. I think it's a little bit of a journey of growth. Sports saved my life. And my dad, my dad, just a world war II vet, European tough as nails scary looking human being. So when he was mad, he was terrifying, but he never said he loved me as a kid. When he put me in sports, he put me in lacrosse, hockey, boxing, but he was there at all the practices. He showed me he loved me. So I finally got to feel what love looked like. And my mom was removed from the home and I didn't speak to my mom for probably around five years. But at the end of the book, it's actually a love story. Little boy always wants his mom's love. And I got to be friends with my mom. She got to hold my son before she passed away. And yeah, so a lot of my friends read that book and they're like halfway through and they're like, sir, but I can't do it. I go, keep going because it's a great ending. I and the great ending is I'm an ops chief in one of the biggest fire departments in the country. And I got a beautiful wife and two great kids and I rebuilt my whole life. And yeah, and that's where the second book comes in because I couldn't tell the whole story. And I do tell it in the second book. So people that have been through financial loss, people that have been through adversity, people who have lost faith in themselves. Yeah. Doesn't 
not every day is great and it doesn't mean problems can't fall around. And I definitely, yeah, it almost happened again. That, that event as a little kid almost it played out almost exactly the same as an adult. And it was terrifying. And then I started, when I got through that, I'm, I, I made some bad decisions, but I lost my ability to sleep. So if you ever hear one of my presentations, you'll hear a lot of, you'll hear me talk a lot about sleep. Most first responders who have dark thoughts will have had nights or weeks where they haven't been able to get a deep sleep or REM and, and, and they'll be coping with alcohol or, or they'll be doing things that aren't helping them get sleep. In fact, the more alcohol you drink, the worse you will sleep. People think, oh no, I'm going to pound back a bunch of booze. I'm going to sleep like a rock. Well, you are passed out. You're not sleeping. It'll put you to sleep fast, but then it's going to wake you up in a couple hours. Yeah. yeah, you'll wake up tired. And so I learned a lot about myself in the later parts of my life as well. And so I write that in the second book. And I think what, I, one of the takeaways I think people would get from the first book is everybody's got their story. Mm-hmm. So many people said, look, I didn't do the stuff you did as your kid, but I related to so many things. We all have our stories and we all have things we're ashamed of and embarrassed of. You can think about something you said to someone 10 years ago that was awkward or embarrassing and and it still bothers you to this day. You know what I mean? You just, there are things that you need to deal with in your life. And I think that's what the first book does is tells people, Hey, you know what? Everybody's got their shit. And if you really want to look inward and deal with it, you can do it. And everybody's allowed to make mistakes and, and become something. And I think that's what the first book is all about. Imagine it's pretty freeing too to be honest and get that off your shoulders and not keep secrets about your past. That must be a freeing feeling. Is that right? Or it was terrifying to push publish. To be honest, it was funny because nobody in my department said a word, and it was probably three weeks later, and it was all over the news. It was in the Vancouver province, Vancouver, like everybody in the department had seen the story. And then this rookie at a third alarm fire was about four in the morning. We're just getting a knockdown. It was a big commercial building. He walked to me and goes, Hey chief, I read your book. I just want to thank you for having the courage to write it and publish it and shook my hand and walked away. And I was like, okay, that was pretty cool. Cause nobody was saying anything. I was really worried about the negative connotation, but not nothing came. And I let a bunch of chiefs and people I care about in the fire service read the second one because it's a little bit more, it's a, it's the next level and yeah, they're very supportive. Yeah. I'm going to just keep moving forward and try and convince those people that are out there all by themselves and feeling full of shame and feeling super lonely that, Hey, it's okay to talk about it. And I do get those calls and I, I do feel honored, but I also tell people I'm not a clinical counselor. I don't have the tools to help you walk through your journey, but I'll make an appointment with a good clinical counselor for you tomorrow. Done that multiple times. But if someone calls me back a second time and they tell me, I just want to talk to you because I felt better. I will say, if you can't go through a health professional, I don't mind talking to you, but if you're not going to actually do the work, I have my own family and I only have so much capacity as I talked about. I can't do this. I can't just be your friend. If you're not willing to step up and do help, get help. And a lot of people that does convince them to go try something like most men, myself included, it took me three counselors before I found one that I connected with and I felt it didn't work for me, but I just, I never made that connection. And that's so important, isn't it? That you find a connection with your therapist, your professional, instead of just picking the first one that comes to you, someone you really connect with and you can be totally vulnerable, open, transparent versus guarded, right? Yeah. I think. 
it's how you feel when you leave. Like the first couple of times for someone that's never been, I have one counselor in particular that I send people to that firefighters that are pretty stoic and they've never been, and she treats them in a certain way and breaks down their barriers a little easier than other mm-hmm. ones. And yeah. And so I have half a dozen people, depending on who they are. I try and get a read on what's going on and then I send them. It's always different. I, I, I sometimes i never hear back from those people, but I hear in their department, they're doing well. And that's what the fire service has always done. It's always quietly helped its members. I think there's always been people in, in all the departments that have stepped up and helped their members, but yeah, it's not, it's how you make people feel, right? It's how people feel. If they feel supported, they will, they'll come to work and they'll be yeah. grateful. They got their job. And even though they're getting divorced right now, or one of their kids is in trouble. Work can be a really solid foundation for resilience, even. You've mentioned shame several times in our conversations tonight. What's your thoughts about shame and what can we do to maybe identify that in ourselves? And what can we do to maybe pull us out of that a little bit? One of the clinical counseling courses I took, I tell every first responder to buy The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel mm-hmm. van der Kolk. Great book. And When the Body Says No by Gabor Mate. They're friends, actually, but... One of the things I would say, Brene Brown probably got the best read on shame. She understands being vulnerable and shame, and she's done a lot of her research on, it's called the shame hole, but when people get into the shame hole, why they struggle and why they can't get out and why sometimes they are unable to, and they end up taking their lives. And she really, I think has, she's definitely helped me to be more vulnerable. Just, I used to like Simon Sinek and. Jocko Wilnick, I used to follow him, but I'd say Brene Brown for me, the very first time I spoke, I was actually uh, just in the audience and the mental health presenter didn't show. And it was a conference with the BCPFA and the Fire Chiefs Association. And there was 450 chiefs and union executives in there. And they said, would you go up and talk like for 10 minutes about mental health? I'm like, just like mental health and suicide. If you could, I'm like, hold on. You want me to talk about mental health and suicide in front of 450 of my peers? went and they're like in 15 minutes oh, man. and I went, sure. I had no notes. I walked up there and I just talked about the childhood story that I wrote and the Loon Lake experience and the friend that I lost. And I just empowered people to take a look inward and how important programs like the men's resiliency program really is and how helpful it is. And how, when I went there, I didn't think I was struggling, but holy smokes, I definitely was. We all were. And. I got a standing ovation. I don't even remember what I said, but I remember that being the moment that kicked off a speaking career for me. It kicked off a TEDx. They asked me if I could do that presentation in a TEDx. But what was interesting is I couldn't because I practiced and practiced. But the first one just came out of, it came from my heart. That's what I was going to say. You spoke from your heart. I'm thinking. Yeah. Yeah. And the second one was you're in an auditorium with four cameras and there's a crowd there and I practiced, I'm going to say a hundred times. And then I was trying to stick around 10 minutes. And I think I added three minutes just from rambling, from being on stage and just, yeah, I couldn't do it. I should have went up there and done a whole different topic. I should have mm-hmm. went up there and done something completely different and just winged it. But anyways, I learned a lot about speaking and I met an amazing guy by the name of Ray Rainey. He worked for the IAAF. And he would go into mass shootings in the United States and set up all the counseling for the members that responded. And he was the battalion chief for the Columbine high school shooting. So he was first in on the Columbine high school shooting and his lived experience got him 
basically his education. That's lived experience compared to education is definitely qualifies. And he was also a Vietnam vet and he had never struggled from post-traumatic stress before the Columbine high school shooting. And he had to take a bunch of time off and rebuild his life. And he mentored me early on about my speaking and to not talk about post-traumatic stress disorder, but to talk about post-traumatic stress injuries. And so I talk a lot like that. A lot of us have been diagnosed with PTSD and I still argue the fact that I'm not, that I'm not disordered, but I think I was definitely injured multiple times. I think I definitely coped poorly by drinking alcohol and playing hockey and lacrosse and doing all these things. But my co coping mechanisms were not very strong. And I think Ray really taught me how to connect with individuals from his perspective and speaking from a background of lived experience, as opposed to having a PhD, he really helped me talk. And so I was very fortunate to meet him early on. And I actually just talked to him a few weeks ago. He's retired. He doesn't want anything to do with post-traumatic stress, going to mass shootings. He's done. He's living his life. And Good. And yeah, it's, yeah, life's a journey, right? Yeah. PTSI, I'm a firm believer of that as well. It's an injury for sure. And honestly, I think that most firefighters, if not all, have some sort of traumatic stress. Like how can you not have some traumatic stress? Doesn't mean you have a diagnosis, but going to see these calls day in, day out, you're going to have stress in your backpack. You're going to have trauma in your backpack. It's pretty yeah. much unavoidable. It's just how we manage that and how we be more resilient and process those as well, which is through mental health specialists, professionals, peer support, you name it. Yeah. And even within your own organization, knowing when to check in on somebody, knowing what to give them, knowing how to even do that part. Like we're fire departments are just starting to learn how to do that. Like it's one thing to have a CIR that you can call WorkSafe, but if nobody calls WorkSafe and nobody pulls a CR and no one checks in on an individual, it's not working. Yeah. So that's the missing piece. And the other missing piece is the family members. We always left family out of it. Now we connect directly with family. We just had a really, really horrific call where the crew were covered in blood. They had to throw their uniforms away and they went home with a package for their spouses and partners. Watch this, look for this. That's something we did in Surrey and I brought it to the department I'm in now. And yeah, and then we check in on the partners and we check in on the, and so now you're, you're getting checked in from work and you're also getting checked in from your wife or your husband. And that's the powerful piece because really hard to hide from both ends. It's interesting. What's, what do those partners get? When they get that package, what's in there? So there's just watch for signs of not wanting to do anything, staring off into the TV, drinking more than normal, crying. Yeah. The, all sorts of things that they, the person normally wouldn't do. And it's almost like a checklist. And so five to seven days, the chemicals in your brain start to settle down. And then that's when, you know, they would want to do a, an actual debriefing, like a significant critical incident debriefing. That's what the handout takes. Like the next five to seven days are important. And even with everything I know, I'm still bothered by, I still know that like in, in Surrey, when I worked there, we, every couple of weeks, the ops chief would have to sit with the crew and I hit and go over an interview and you'd have to hear every firefighter get interviewed. If there was six on a crew, every one of them. And. I'd leave some nights going, holy smokes, I cannot protect my mental health. I just heard that story six times and it's horrific. And so I'd phone my wife, we'd talk it out. I'd phone friends, 
I, I try and do some exercise because we do know that by moving the body really does push the mind into a positive space. There's lots of things you can do, but I know enough now that I know I will be bothered and I'm okay with that, but I'm not going to do anything about it. Yeah. What's your thought about talking with our partners? How much do you like to share? And what do you think is a healthy amount to share? It's funny. I raised my kids with four other firefighter families and we went camping together. We went skiing together. Like we would spend Christmases together and our kids are all about the same age. And it was four firefighters and three nurses and somebody that worked in the cancer agency. And so I think I probably shared more than most when I was diagnosed with depression. The toughest thing was for me to tell my wife and your perception of, oh my gosh, I got depression. I'm like, I don't want anybody to know. And the city of Surrey asked me to come back and be an ops chief knowing I had depression. The township of Desquimal asked me to be their fire chief knowing I, I have depression. Like it's not a death sentence. You just have to manage it. I'm not on antidepressants because I, I work hard at the things we talked about, breathing. But you know what? Not every day is great. I, after I lost my friend, I was certainly depressed for about a month. I definitely felt it. But I really was worried about what my wife was going to think of me. So I spent three days trying to figure out how to tell her. And finally I had her sit down and she's, what are you going to say to me? She's freaking out. And I said, I've been diagnosed with depression. And she totally relaxed and goes, I know. Said, how do you know? She goes, I think I realized on our second date, she goes, Steve, when we're in a quiet place, you stare off into the sky for five minutes. The kids would say to me when they were younger. We don't want to watch Ice Age and Lion King with dad because he's always crying. And she goes, so it's funny. You mm. think your fears, they might be your fears, but the, your perspective on what other people might think about you might be wrong. And I can tell you talking to you tonight that I'm more resilient than I've ever been in my life because if you can name it, you can tame it. If, I love it. So now that I know what it is, I'm not afraid to talk about it openly. And I'm not afraid to say, yeah, I didn't ask for this to happen, but I have this thing. And it's probably a little hereditary. Both my parents suffered my childhood. I have childhood trauma. Yeah. I ignored it for so long. And I used alcohol to cope, to battle my depression, just like my parents did. And I think I feel very fortunate that I had people like my wife and that I can talk to. So. I talk to my wife a lot. Well, it's interesting. I have two kids from Queens University that graduated and I'll tell my daughter who also, she, she struggles as well. And I'll tell her I'm not feeling well today. She goes, what do you think's wrong? I go, I don't know. It's pouring rain outside. It's gray. I mean, it might be that, or maybe I didn't sleep that well. So I, even my own daughter's not afraid to talk to me about it, which Beautiful. I think super important, right? So in my family, we talk about everything and we're not afraid to say, Hey, I got a great friend of mine, Dr. Mark Vu, and he taught me something in 2016 when we first became buddies. He would say to me, how's it going? I'd go, awesome. That would be my answer all the time. Awesome. He goes, awesome. I'm like, yeah. He goes, is it awesome? I go, not really, but I don't want to really tell you. It's not great. And he goes, you know what I want you to tell me? I want you to tell me when you're having a shit day. And then I'll tell you when I'm having a shit day. I love that. Like, I love, I go, how you doing? I'm having a shit day. What's going on? And so by the five minutes into the conversation and you're talking it out, it's just such a way better way to go through your day with friends than it is to say, awesome. Cause that's what I always used to say, always, oh yeah, I'm doing great. Fantastic. Awesome. But I wasn't all the time. So why would I say that? 
And now I can open up to my friends who I trust, but, and just talk. It's Mm -hmm. cool. It's fun. Beautiful. Beautiful. You mentioned numerous times in your book about it. Sometimes it's okay not to be okay. What does that mean? People know I have depression. People know I'm a fire chief. I don't take for granted that things could change six months from now. Things could change a year from now. If you look at how people go through life and struggling is a fact of life. There will be things that hit you at 4.30 on a Tuesday that you might not be able to deal with. And you might not want to talk to people. So I tell people, I've had lots of phone calls. I've had several phone calls when people say they're about to take their life. And I've been on the other end of that when the person hung up the phone and done it. So I've been on the failure side of that as well. But I tell people, it's okay. It's okay to feel this way. If it takes you a week, a month, it's okay. I just don't tell them it's going to be okay because they have to do all the work, right? They got to, they got to do all the heavy lifting, but it's okay to feel crappy when you're going through something. That's, I compare it to some in the fire service to a smoke alarm. Like people are like having anxiety. I go, Hey, that's your smoke alarm going off. You can knock it off the wall or pour booze on it. It'll muffle the sound, but it's not fixing whatever the problem is. And so. I, everybody's got their story. And that's one thing I did really find out when I wrote that book was how many people had their story, but didn't really want to share it with anybody. But for some reason, because I put myself out there, they were comfortable sharing it with me. AJ, so many people are struggling. So many people I know that are struggling and you just want them to get through it. You want them to be, and you're worried about them, but you don't judge them for struggling. And. I say that because I did do that in the first 10 years of my career. I was a kick-ass firefighter, I thought, and I loved going to those gnarly calls and life was great. I was playing lacrosse. I was drinking all the time and hockey and I was bulletproof until I wasn't. So that's what it's okay to not be okay means. You're allowed to feel crappy and you're allowed to struggle. You're allowed to cry. How many men don't think they were ever allowed to cry? You're allowed to cry. It's actually a good thing to do. It's healthy. Yes. Yeah. It's about being uh, human. Yeah. You know what? It's about, it's a, it, yeah, it's about dealing with your stuff. Right. So yeah, it's hard. And I, it's hard being a guy. I do a lot of work for John O'Grodnachuk. He's a professor at a UBC, creator of a nonprofit called Heads Up Guys. And guys are not cool with saying they're struggling. And some of them would rather jump off a building or a bridge rather than try medication to make those feelings, put them into remission so they can get a better look at themselves so they can start doing the work. And yeah, it's, we have a long way to go, not just in the fire service society. COVID kicked the crap out of so many people. We're just coming out right now and people are starting to realize how tough that was. Is there any questions that you wish I asked you tonight that I haven't asked you yet? I would say I'm looking at my lighting and it got really dark and I wish I'd have chose a different lighting, but how's the lighting? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, it's good. Yeah, you're highlighted good. So yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's this isn't my little podcast studio, so I'm upstairs because my yeah, all good. my family's downstairs. But oh, you know what? I like what you're doing. I like that you're keeping the conversation going. I like that the fire service is changing. I don't know how much time I have left in here, but I do being part of positive change and you we're all starting to see it in the fire service. And if we look back at the last fifteen or twenty years and now you're out of the game, you can look back and see it much clearer than when you were in it, when you were in that mosh pit, and that organizational stress, really hard to see 
a lot of the stuff that you could actually be part of the change because you're in it. But when you're out of it, it's much easier to see. I'm glad you're doing this. I'm really, I'm happy that you're out there keeping the conversation going and using your lived experience, which I feel is as valuable, if not more valuable than taking a master's degree and getting people to talk about tough conversations. It's important. So to finish off this evening, what would be one message, one key message you want to make sure our listeners kind of walk away with tonight to improve the fire service 1%? I would say, don't be afraid to get involved, to intervene. And people are like fearful to do that because they don't know how they don't know what it doesn't have to be in the fire service can be at home, can be with a friend. And I've been involved in many interventions. Not so long ago, we had a really nice, great human beings, been supportive of others. And one day just asked if we'd come in and take the guns out of his house. And we did that and spent some time in the hospital and he And here's how we did this. Here's how the intervention happened. You go to that home, you give them a hug. There's lots of crying and you phone the crisis line and you sit on the couch with this person, with your arm around them while they're talking to someone at the crisis center. And in this case, you drive them to the hospital. I would tell your listeners, don't be afraid to intervene. And it's not hard. That crisis line number is available. You can phone the crisis line and tell them to phone the person you're worried about. So there are ways to intervene. And the one thing I would say is when someone's really struggling, that shame piece is they don't want to talk. They, you don't have to, you don't have to do a lot of talking. You just go sit beside someone. And if they do start talking and you just listen, not only might you make a world of difference to them feeling better, you might save their life. And the interesting thing that I've learned, because I work with a lot of psychologists now, is when you're really worried about someone, you need to ask them, are you thinking of harming yourself? Are you okay? We care about you. We love you. Just want to know if you're okay. And if they say they're okay and you are really worried about them, ask them why they're okay. Ask them why they're not thinking of taking it. Make them put words to why they want to be here and then you'll find out. Because people are very good at just trying to get people to stop talking to them. And and so there's little things you can do to intervene. And that's the one thing I would leave with is never be afraid to intervene. I manage a lot of jumper calls and three hours into those calls with 20 firefighters standing around, those people jump. And I got to be honest with you, when I drive home, I don't own one bit of that. I look at that as my survival skill is that person was in pain and they're no longer in pain. I don't know them. We did a good job here today and I drive home and then I go to sleep. Do I feel bad about the circumstances? Absolutely. But that right there is the way life works every day and it happens every day. And I can't control what happens in this world. I can only control how I feel about it and how I treat others. And if you can be kind to somebody in their worst moment, you'll make a difference. That's true, true leadership of yourself, right? That's mm-hmm. for sure. Chief, it's been a real honor to chat with you today. And I truly feel you're making a huge impact on the fire service. Every single moment, every message you share, every book you write, I truly feel you're making a huge difference. So I really, from a fire service member to another fire service member, thank you. And thank you for the good work you're doing. How can our listeners get a hold of your book and your, when's your new book coming out? Yeah, the new book will be out hopefully in the summer. It's ready to go right now. Just the process and publishing is 
it just takes a few months. A Amazon, The Unbroken, the first book is sold in all major bookstores. Amazon, Friesen Publishing out of Victoria, they sell it and then the next book will be the same. It'll be out of nice. all the bookstores and yeah, there's lots of good books out there and uh, hey, I love to promote my own book, but I'm not very good at it, but I would promote The Body Keeps the Score to everybody who's listening because I honestly believe, yeah, that book, it's insight into, especially if you're a first responder, you've got to read that book. Us two people to ALS and there's no question in my mind what the studies that Professor Van der Kolk has done are real. They're factual. They are important to know. Yeah. So yeah. there you go. Yeah. That's one of my favorite books as well. hundred percent. Yeah. 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 He's a guru in that. Yeah. So, so thanks so much for having me on. You're doing great work yourself. Thanks for the kind words. And I'm super grateful for the opportunity to be in the fire service, to be on your show. And yeah, just I, there's part of my gratitude every day as well. It's just, you know what? I'm in the game still. And yes. I'm really grateful to be around people like yourself. So keep doing the great work out there. You as well. Thanks, Chief. Alrighty. Stay well. Okay, take care. Thanks so much. Thank you for tuning in to Beneath the Helmet. We hope that this podcast has provided you with valuable insights into the world of firefighters' health and wellness. Remember, caring for your physical, mental, and spiritual well-being is crucial to achieving optimal performance. Join us next time on Beneath the Helmet for more inspiring conversations. Until then, stay well.